Martin has been a mental health professional for longer than he cares to remember. For the last 10 years, he's been the founder and managing consultant at Clarity Stress and Trauma. When he isn't travelling to provide support after traumatic events, you'll find him delivering training courses or feeding his chickens. Adam has been a BBC journalist and presenter for over, well, put it this way, he had plenty of hair back then. Using his extensive BBC experience, his company, Adam Kirtley Media, provides media, crisis media, and presentation skills training across the world. He used to feed his own flock of chickens until the fox ate them all. Martin, obviously we're not directly affected personally by the awful events going on in Ukraine. However, I was just interested, given this is really your professional knowledge coming to the fore here, I was just interested in whether something as traumatic as Ukraine could maybe trigger things in our own lives, remind us of things. So do you think such an event can remind us of something we went through? Yes, it's very likely to trigger old memories for all sorts of people. And we wouldn't be surprised, of course, if they were to be, oh, ex-military, perhaps people who themselves have been involved in armed conflicts. But it can be tempting to imagine that that would be the only link, whereas in reality, many, many people will find that there's something about the Ukraine conflict. Maybe they are watching some news coverage and they happen to see a distressing bit of video of, oh, I don't know, an older person with their face bloodied or something like this. It would be very unpleasant to see. But it doesn't necessarily remind you only of a situation where there was, um, you know, bombing and explosions and military conflict going on. It could remind you of having spent a very unpleasant time in A&E, for instance, or something of that kind with somebody that you're close to. Yeah, the important thing about this is that it's tempting to imagine that what we recall when we look back, that the memories that seem to come jumping back fresh and vivid as if they only happened last week are happening because they were very similar sorts of event, whereas often the actual event wasn't similar at all. What was similar was the reactions that we had. So if we now find ourselves having thoughts and feelings which are similar to the strong and perhaps distressing thoughts and feelings that we had in the past, it's that that creates the bridge in our memory between that old event and the new event, causing the old event. And it's quite often I find people saying to me, but that old thing, that wasn't anything like this. That's not the point. It's the fact that it generated feelings which are similar to the ones you're having now. And that's why that old thing comes back vividly in your mind. But people, as a result, of course, say, oh, you know, that really distressing thing that happened, I haven't thought about it for a long time. And yet now it's fresh in my mind again. Of course, it could be something that is similar in a violent sort of way. For example, oh, I don't know, being caught up in the Manchester bombings or the London Bridge attacks or something like that. So it is similar in the violence that you experienced, uh, but obviously wasn't a war situation. Absolutely right. As you say, it could be all sorts of domestic or civil things. People have experienced a road traffic accident or, as you say, something as horrific and fortunately rare as a terrorist event like a bomb. All sorts of things. And I think back to the kind of really quite surreal experiences that some of the people I've met have had. I'm thinking of things like um, people who were walking to work one day across London Bridge and suddenly found themselves witnessing the police shooting the terrorist who had launched the knife attack on a number of people there. You know, what a remarkable and amazing thing to find yourself seeing, but also quite horrible, of course. Whatever you think about the person they were shooting, to see somebody shot like that. So that is the kind of thing which people may well go through quite a good recovery from. Maybe over the course of two or three weeks, they say, oh, I don't really think about it as much as I did. And when I do, it's not bothering me quite so much. A couple of weeks later, they think, oh, that's gone into the memory 
memory banks now and probably isn't going to be an issue. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself maybe watching some TV coverage of Ukraine. And what do you hear? Of course, you hear shots being fired. Maybe shots that happen to, to resemble, surprisingly resemble the shots you remember, and which actually now you realise are echoing in your memory again. Is there a given reaction to these things? Is there a, a, a reaction that you can say, yeah, you've broken out in a sweat, you've started shouting or whatever, that's normal? Or do people react in very different ways? And it's sometimes quite difficult to analyse, I suppose, how they're reacting. There are a broad set of reactions that I would say are the, the normal reactions to these very abnormal events. I say they're normal, of course, because it's what happens to other people as well when something traumatic happens that they experience. But it doesn't feel normal to people when it's happening to them. Just the opposite. It feels very frightening, distressing and, and disruptive to their lives. But there is a kind of a normal range of events. However, it's not the case that everybody has the same reactions. There are some reactions that really are pretty commonplace. It doesn't mean they're particularly mild or severe. They just seem to be quite commonplace. And there are others which are a bit rarer. And over the years talking about this, I find myself with this metaphor, which is the, the Woolies pick and mix bag. Now, people of a certain age, Adam, I'm looking at you and me, people of a certain age will remember going... Yes, I do remember Woolworths and the sweet counter. You're quite right. Exactly. You get, and to be honest, this was a very pleasurable experience. You go and get your little white paper bag and go to the, the Woolworths Pick and Mix and pick out a few sweets. Bit of this, bit of that. Absolutely. Weigh it, discover it's more expensive than you could possibly have believed because you intended to get four ounces, but somehow you've got eight ounces. How did that happen? But anyway, the point is, if you were to do that with a dozen people and then compare your little white paper bags, you'd find that some sweets seem to have turned up in almost everybody's. Like some reactions seem to be remarkably commonplace after trauma, but others are rarer. But even the rarer ones come from the same group of reactions, like the Woolies pick and counter. I know I'm being flippant about it, but it is a little bit like that. You get the same set of reactions. So myself and my colleagues, for instance, in meeting people who have traumatic experiences, it would be very odd and unusual to meet somebody now who told me about a reaction that I thought, oh my goodness, I've never heard of that before. It just doesn't really turn out like that. They might describe it in a way which is personal to them, perhaps, and their actual experience. I can never say, oh, I know how you feel, because that, that would be rubbish. But I, I know the sort of reaction they're describing and how other people have talked about it in the past. So, yes, there are a typical range of reactions and individuals tend to have some reactions from within that range. If people are traumatised, either just by watching the, the news coverage and or it triggers a previous event in their life or whatever, as you've been so eloquently describing, what techniques can be used to alleviate that? Because actually feeling that trauma and that terror is, is an incredibly unpleasant thing. So what techniques are there for, for getting you out of it, getting you through it? Yeah, it is quite miserable and people will be traumatised by them, of course, having something directly happen to them or possibly witnessing it happening to others, and, and that can be at some distance. Or, of course, knowing that that sort of thing is happening to somebody you care deeply about. And we've talked about Ukrainian refugees coming to this country and recognising that that might be the issue for them, that they fear that happening to people they love, and indeed might see something along those lines happening when they see the news coverage on British TV. So there are all sorts of people, including Britons as well, who will find themselves affected. So, yes, you're having these reactions. What can you do about it? Well... 
An awful lot of my work, to be honest, is trying to discourage people from trying to find, if you like, the magic pill or the thing that's going to suddenly stop it happening to them. Generally speaking, what will happen for the great majority of people is that the reactions will subside in severity over time. And unfortunately, it always takes a little bit longer than you thought it would. Quite understandably, people will sometimes think, well, if I manage to have a couple of nights good sleep, and do something pleasant and distracting and get back to work after the weekend or whatever, then surely, surely I'll be distracted from this and I won't be thinking about it and I won't be so distressed. And it tends not to be like that. Our mind seems to want to dwell on this frightening, shocking thing which it feels the need to want to protect us from. Well, and, and can I just interrupt mm. you there, Martin? Why is that? Why is it that our brain... This has always fascinated me. Mm. Why is it that our brain can't get rid of a thought, that it ponders on something that is destructive, that's unpleasant. Why can't it shut it out? Why can it even shut it out for a few days, but then it wretched well comes back to haunt you again? Why is that? Right, well, it will, it will for a while. As I say, over time, our mind, how much these things bother us, will tend to subside as long as things don't keep on happening to provoke the thoughts Yeah, again. but I suppose my and, question is, sorry, yeah. I'm interrupting mm. you, but I just, I genuinely find this fascinating. What, why does the brain want to keep recalling it anyway? I know it fades over time, but why doesn't it just say, yeah, you know, the likelihood of that happening to me again is zero, so I'll just park it. When something is sufficiently serious, our mind takes the view that this must be really important. Our mind, in a sense, says, oh my God, that's serious. That's something I need to think about in order to work out what there is I should learn from it. What do I need to learn that will help protect me and the people I care about better in future? And so in, what happens is our mind goes to that thing again and again and again. I have um, an analogy that I use here, which is the drawing of a bicycle wheel. Stick with me, Adam, I will explain. So in the middle of the wheel, you have a circle which represents the hub, and the hub represents for our purposes the thing that's actually happened. So our thoughts and feelings about the thing that has happened. So if it happened to us, we will have specific memories of it. If it happened to other people, we will have perhaps have imagined what it might have been like. So that's what actually happened. And our mind will often go back and back and back to that. But not only that, with time, we'll find that we don't only think about what happened, we'll think about it. And each of these lines of thought, these trains of thought, are spokes coming off from the hub. And there are lots of spokes, of course. And our mind will tend to go down each of these spokes again and again and again, slowly, slowly over time, kind of, well, wearing it out, really. Sounds a bit trite, but, you know, it's as simple as that, kind of wearing it out, getting to the point where that thought isn't so alarming slowly as time goes by and your mind, therefore, doesn't feel quite so compelled to have to keep on going back to it. And you'll have spokes, which are what-if thoughts, and you might have spokes, which are if-only thoughts, and spokes, which are consequences, and spokes, which are guilty feelings about what should I have done differently, all sorts of trains of thought. And slowly, slowly over time, by revisiting and revisiting these trains of thought, our mind, one sort of gets used to it, which again sounds a bit mundane, but that is kind of what's happening. Something which at first was very shocking and raw, slowly we kind of get used to it over time. And secondly, our mind eventually kind of reaches the point where it thinks, okay, I've worked out what there is that I need to learn from this, if anything, now, and I can begin to package it away. But it never goes away entirely. And that's why we come back to where we started, that old memory coming back fresh again when something strong enough reminds us of it. And is, is there a bit of safety in 
the fact that your brain says to itself, I've had this thought 15 times before and I'm still here, so I guess it's not that bad. Well, we kind of have to say that to ourselves. That's part of the way in which you sort of deal with it because from your mind's point of view, it is in your interests to be alert and anxious and wary and guarded and on edge and so on. But that's a pretty miserable life I'm describing, isn't it? But from your mind's point of view, it has no concern that that is what's going to happen if you keep on thinking about these things because it gives you the impression that the world is a dangerous place, more dangerous than I believed it was. Look at the kind of things that happen to perfectly normal people just like me. Perhaps it's going to happen to me. Oh, and there are other kinds of risks. Is this like a wildebeest thinking, if I don't keep looking around, the lion might get me? Yeah, absolutely. Because okay. we are, as you say, mammals. We share a lot of these reactions. This is all part of sort of fight or flight. And we share this with big furry beasts like wildebeest and indeed small furry beasts like mice or hedgehogs or whatever. And a lot of the other animal kingdom as well. Those basic fundamental bits stuck at the bottom of the base of our brain, which are to do with principles of the basics of keeping us alive, making our lungs breathe and making us <gasps> jump back when something frightening suddenly appears. That primitive stuff, yeah, we share it with lots of other creatures. All right, given we do, and given that we can be triggered into feeling fear because of something that's happened to us. And this is all about Ukraine and how that may trigger feelings in us for other things. I guess the wall-to-wall -wall coverage, the absolute blanket coverage of Ukraine, which has gone on on all major TV channels, suggests that the media is almost feeding this likelihood of triggering fears in people. In other words, I suppose, what role do you think the media has played in fomenting this thing that we can have if we have a bad trigger because of something we've seen on the telly. Yeah, well, you're right. But of course, I don't want to blame no, our industry. No, no, no. And, and I don't because it, that relationship between the viewer and the media is, uh, what's the fancy word? Symbiotic, I think. The media wouldn't keep on producing this coverage if it wasn't getting the interest OK, now the example here, which I happen to know a little bit about and which many, many listeners will recall, is the tragic disappearance of Madeleine McCann all those many years ago now and how that remains so prominent in the news for such a long time. And you might say, well, of course it did. There was a little girl missing. Indeed, tragically, such things happen and they don't remain prominent in the news for week after week after week in the way that we know that happened then. There was something about that which meant that there was an interest, a very widespread interest amongst the kind of viewing and listening to the public. And as a result, the media responded to that by feeding that interest. And of course, when you've got something as serious as this war going on and the situation is changing and developing and we don't know what the outcome will be, then of course that, that coverage is continuing. You remember what I was saying a moment ago, Adam, about uh, this kind of primitive bit of our mind. Mm, when the base of the brain. Absolutely. When something shocking and frightening and dangerous happens, I think of it as being a little bit... It's primitive idea. It's a little bit as if somebody's come along with a sharpened stick and has poked at that bit of our brain and said, wake up, wake up, look, 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 look how dangerous the world is. And suddenly this bit of our brain is enlivened and it's throwing out sorts of hormones and stuff, which means that we then become, as I say, on edge, careful, wary, cautious, what's going on, what might happen next? And that alertness makes us want to see what's going on. We've talked previously about being aware there's, there's wall to wall coverage and we could if we wanted to invest that much time and 
trouble, be watching coverage 24 hours a day, probably, by going online and all the radio and podcasts and TV. So it's there and it feeds that natural urge to say, what is it that's going on? What is it I've got to be worried about? What is it that's happening next? And once that bit of our brain has kind of been prodded and woken up and it keeps on going, and of course, as you then watch this further coverage and see other alarming events and hear people speculating about what happened next and so on, it's like somebody's continuing to prod that bit of your brain with that pointy stick saying, whoa, look at that, look at that, it's a dangerous world. And it keeps you going, which is why it's a good idea to try and limit how much access you actually have to that kind of information because, yeah, it will have a natural instinctive and quite unpleasant effect. Just a quick final point on this, Martin, is... We have that base of the brain, the primitive brain, if you like, but we are also, you know, we have the frontal cortex as well. We we can think and we can be rational mm. and we can work things out. So hopefully there are techniques you can use to say, OK, well, you know, it's firework night. I'm hosting a Ukrainian. All they can hear is bangs and crashes and it's triggered something in them. But there must be ways that we can... I don't know, the brain can work out, actually, it's okay, it's only fireworks, and it's a happy thing. Yes, but the trouble is that the bit of your brain that's interested in protecting you by noticing the frightening thing, like the pops and bangs of the bangers going off on November the 5th, that bit of your brain is fast and powerful. The bit of your brain you're describing, that kind of big corrugated bit that we're all familiar with, that is very, very clever, but it's also rather slower and more ponderous. So you're right, what will happen is that the person will say to you, yes, yes, I know what it is. I know it's fireworks, but still, every time there's another bang, I jump. I jump every time. Because if that person is kind of tuned by having had that pointy stick poking at that primitive bit of that brain, and they are now on edge and wary and cautious, then any bang, especially, of course, a bang that sounds rather a lot like some of the bangs that they heard when they were in Ukraine, is going to set them off. You sometimes hear people talk about this because I describe that bit of your primitive bit of your brain as the bit that produces the I feel type of thoughts, whereas the big thinking bit of your brain is the bit that produces the I think, which, as I say, is a bit slower and more ponderous. Sometimes you will hear both of these things expressed in the same sentence. You'll hear somebody say something like, I know it's silly, which is the I think bit, but I can't help feeling. Yeah, because the feeling is going on powerfully and instinctively, even though the thinking process is saying you don't need to feel so threatened by this. Honestly, it is a safe thing. But it takes a pretty long time for our mind to settle down and become convinced that we really are somewhere safe, in spite of the fact that there are occasionally threatening noises that go on. And you're right, November the 5th is a good example, but it could just be a backfiring engine. It could be all sorts of things that would have the same effect. Of course. Of course. Is there any magic Martin pill that you can take to sort this out? To make the front bit of the brain beat the back bit of the brain? (laughs) It's firstly knowing that this is what's going on and not that you are mad or strange or ill or weak. Recognising this is what's going on. Secondly, try to avoid the temptation to do things that seem like an easy fix, which are dysfunctional. Drinking too much, staying up incredibly late so that by the time you finally go to sleep, you've got a good chance of falling asleep rather than lying there thinking, 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 because that'll completely mess up your day-night routine. 
avoiding things that you would normally do, which would normally be, you know, a nice, pleasant part of the routine of your life, but which now maybe you find yourself thinking, oh, I just don't feel like it. I can't be bothered, really. I'm, I'm, I'm tired and it's quite a lot of trouble. If you can, try and remain with the normal routine of your life as much as you reasonably and sensibly can. And then you just kind of have to give it some time. But of course, during that time, there are, you know, simple things you can do to try and make life a little bit more pleasant. Proactively look for things which you know you'll find it pleasant or calming to do. Gosh, the war in Ukraine hopefully will end soon, but the war in the brain is probably going to go on for many, many years to come. Martin, always a pleasure. Thank you, Adam. Take care. Well, that's it for this time. Do follow us to get an alert when our next podcast is available. And you can contact Martin on martinalderton at claritysat.com. And Adam on adamkirtleymedia.co.uk. Join us again next time. Thank you.